I knew when I saw her for the last time that this was probably going to be the last time. But people from provincial New Zealand aren't very good at opening up. So I never, I never, <clears throat> I um, never got to say to her all the things that I'm saying to you right now. <laughs> because people don't do that. Yeah. Um, certainly not in Blenheim <laughs> in, the, in the 90s. I've known Richard Sutherland for a few years now. He's the straight-talking head of news at MediaWorks. On a day-to-day basis, Richard oversees news content, arranges television schedules and coordinates TV reporters. And on the day I talked to him for this podcast, it happened to be exactly 20 years since his grandmother Nora died. It was always Nora with an H. Yeah. Um, so Nora Elizabeth Sutherland. And she um, basically looked after me from, mm. you know, when mum went back to work, which is, I think, about six months after I was born or maybe even sooner, from six months until five, and then from five onwards I went to school. I don't mean this in any way offensively, but you didn't strike me as the kind of person who'd still be upset about your grandmother Well, 20 no, years on. No, and it's funny because I think that the longer... The older I get, I think maybe the more life experience you get, the more you realise what's important and what isn't. I mean, I, I, I miss her, and I miss her more the older I get. Nora was an important presence in Richard's life. Growing up, she lived next door to him and his family on their farm in Blenheim. It was a very comforting place to be. You know, when you go to Nana's house, you always get a biscuit or a piece of cake. I can remember her in the kitchen, baking, and she'd be whisking cake batter, and she'd have this particular look on her face of grim determination as she beat this cake mix into submission. But I I think the overwhelming, the general memory is just she was a person who was just absolutely devoted to her family. She's just always there. Nora was in her late 80s when she died in 1999. Richard's wife was pregnant with their first child. wonderful thing about modern medicine is it can keep you alive, but (laughs) sometimes it doesn't keep you alive in a very good state. But she was a battler to the end, you know. She didn't go without a fight, um, but in the end she just you know, passed away. Yeah. Yeah. And um, looking back on it, I think I was, obviously I was heartbroken, but because we had a baby on the way and all that, that was probably quite a useful distraction for me. And then, of course, Oliver came along and we were all focused on that. And so I guess maybe I never really grieved for her properly until many years later. There's a habit, I think of falling back on cliches when elderly people die. That was a ripe old age. But these shortcuts are dismissive. They don't make a person's grief any easier. If a child dies, if someone dies in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s, there's a, oh, this is terrible beyond belief. When someone dies in their 80s or 90s, it's like, oh, well, I've had a good innings, you know, what are you going to do? But there's still that, that, that person is still no longer a part of your life and no longer on the same plane of existence that you are you still grieve but I think sometimes I think we don't take into account the impact of that on people give them three days off and that's just you know he'll be back on Monday and everything will be fine there's an awkwardness I think uh, in certainly in New Zealand society about dealing with death whereas I think other cultures I think do a better job of just grieving and letting it all out and then dealing with it whereas sometimes I think oh well Okay, you, you, you have a big long Catholic mass, you go to the church hall afterwards for cucumber sandwiches and a cup of tea, and then you move on. Here is the thing about death. It doesn't matter if it's your child, your partner, 
or your 90-year-old granny. It's never going to be easy. My name is Mark Longley. My daughter Emily was murdered in 2011 when she was 17 years old. It's sometimes said that time heals all wounds, but that's crap. Death sucks, and we need to acknowledge that. This is a podcast about grief. It's about death and its impact on us. How we mourn, how we cope, how we treat grieving people. I've spoken to people who have lost parents and partners, grandparents and children. I've talked to friends, colleagues and academics. I want to figure out why grief is so hard to process. Why are we so awkward around those who are in pain? And what can we do to help people get through it? We need to talk more about death and grief. Because until we recognise it is part of life, we will never learn to live with it. Yes. Can you show everyone what a clever girl you are? Come over here. Good girl. Daddy, daddy. Yes, Emily. Walk to daddy. Oh, fall down. My daughter Emily stood for the first time on her first birthday. We had a kids' party in the day and an adult party at night. Emily woke up during the night party and I vividly remember her in a white baby grove. Standing in the middle of the room of slightly drunk adults. She was wobbling herself, but had this look on her face of, look at me, I'm standing. Emily? What? I remember her birthday 15 years after that for entirely different reasons. Emily wanted to hold a house party. We told her we would hire a hall instead, but she was set on her idea. She wouldn't back down. So in true Emily style, she came up with a plan. First she would incapacitate her mother, Caroline, by baking a batch of cookies laced with sleeping pills. Caroline would eat the cookies, fall asleep, and have a great night's rest while a party raged in the house below. Emily would host the party, send everyone home, and clean up a trashed house before Caroline woke in the morning, perfectly refreshed from this deep slumber. Emily, in her naive 15-year-old way, thought this plan was foolproof. Her mother and I got wind of it and managed to stop it for the most part, except for the streams of people who kept showing up at the house and the 200 or so revellers who assembled in the Takapuna Burger King car park waiting for the signal. Emily only got two more birthdays. When she died, she was 17. And with each year that passes, I have to guess a little bit more what she would have been like. In 2014, three years after Emily died, my son Hunter was born. That their lives never crossed has been one of the most painful aspects of my grief. I know she would have loved him. We talk about Emily all the time, and we have pictures of her around the house, but he'll never know her. 
Last Christmas, my wife and I planned to take Hunter to see Santa. We told him that we were going to meet someone special. Someone he'd never met before. Hunter asked me if we were going to see Emily. Grief doesn't stop. It just evolves. I didn't feel a lot of anger towards my dad. I know that's a natural feeling to feel when someone commits suicide that you love, but I didn't really, I just felt this huge amount of sadness. This is the voice of Sophie Hill, who we met in episode one. Sophie's father, Dean, committed suicide when she was 19. The birth of Sophie's son, Jack, four years ago, changed the way she thought about her father's death. Since, since my son has been, was born, I felt angry about that because I also don't know how you leave your children, you know, how, how you can do that, know that you're inflicting that grief. I don't know how you say goodbye to your child knowing that you're never going to see them again. So that's something I've never been able to reconcile. My dad was really fun. He was really physical and, and I know that he'd be the same with, you know, my son. I know that he'd be a really hands-on, fun grandfather. I'm angry at him for robbing my son of that. In 2014, when Sophie was 34, her mum died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. So she, again, very, very sudden death. You know, my husband and I were living with her because we'd just moved back from the UK and I'd gotten up early in the morning to go to my new job. I'd only been in for a month. And so I kissed her goodbye that morning. She, she was like, what, what, are you, what are you doing getting up so early, darling? You know, mm. and I went to work and, and about 10 o'clock I got a phone call that mum had, that um, the ambulance had had to been called and she'd called an ambulance and that had to break into the house because she couldn't get to the door and... And I got that phone call from my brother and I think after my dad died, I was just programmed to think that the next phone call was around the corner. And then it happened. Sophie's son, Jack, was born the year after. He never got to meet either of his grandparents. Look, I think the things that happen in your life compound that as well. So I have a three-year-old son now that doesn't know his grandfather, doesn't know his grandmother. And, you know, when you have children and you understand all of a sudden what your parents have been talking about all those years about yeah. that parental love, I feel desperately, desperately sad about that. That's probably one of the things that I feel most sad about. For Richard Sutherland, it's also his children who have brought his grief back into focus. It really is with my kids that I really feel her loss because, yeah, I just know how much she loved the, the grandkids, yeah. I think she would have just fallen head over heels in love with the great-grandkids. Yeah. There's a, I think it's an old Jewish phrase or an old Jewish concept of the second death, which is when once you're, you, you die the first time, then you die a second time when anyone who knew anything about you has gone. For my boys, she's, I mean, she, she's, she's just this concept. And in a couple of generations, there'll be no one alive who, who will remember... Laura Elizabeth Sutherland or what she did or who she was or who she loved or how she loved or yeah. and, and that that, that kind of makes me sad mm. you know um, because to me she was an amazing person Once you stop crying there are very few outward signs of grief in some cultures mourners wear black in Tongan culture for example 
black clothing is worn for up to a year after the death of a family member. But in most societies, grief is invisible. When you return to your life, as you were encouraged to do, people either don't know what you've gone through, or they have no idea how deeply affected you are. When Emily died, I honestly felt like two guys had belted the crap out of me with baseball bats and left me in a heap on the street. If my wounds had been visible, I'd have been in hospital. Nurses and doctors would have been working to keep me alive. There would have been a long recovery and rehabilitation back into the real world. But in grief, the wounds are internal. No one can see them. So you just return to your old life with very little in place to support you. I am usually quite a closed person, though, so it's very hard to get a read on me if you don't know me very well. And I think most people would have thought, oh, yeah, Rich is back from his grandma's funeral when that's, everything's fine, back to work. Because of that experience, I've always been very aware when I've been like in a position dealing with people who have lost loved ones, just to be careful in dealing with them and be aware of what they might be going through. Because yeah. although everything might be fine on the surface, you never know what people are dealing with underneath. As a manager of people for quite some time, that's actually not a bad way to, to look at people. You never know what's going on in other people's lives, yeah. let alone their heads. Going back to work and, and having only been in that job for four weeks, that felt overwhelming because I yeah. didn't have colleagues that I yeah. felt comfortable with at that point to support yeah. me and to understand. And, and I remember um, that's when I felt really overwhelmed. After her mother died, Sophie Hill was given two weeks off work. She'd only been in the role for a month and didn't feel she could ask for any more time. I got torn apart on a conference call that was uh, an overseas conference call. No one knew what had happened mm. and I was new and I hadn't delivered something because I'd been off for yeah. two weeks and um, that, was, that was overwhelming. They didn't know, but I felt like um, my world was kind of crashing down at that point because I felt like, the, you know, it was cold and yeah. and brutal and they you know there were no, there was no allowance but i mean you know i was the new girl and so it was there wasn't much acknowledgement just kind of had to get on with it really sophie thinks there's more workplaces could do even if it was a, a formal hr conversation checking in do you need help? Is the, can you manage the workload? How are you coping? Do you need time off? Yeah. Do you need to leave early? Yeah. Do you need some counselling? I think those are the things that an employer should, should offer and would be helpful. I think it's really important because work can be so overwhelming when you've lost someone. I think it's really important that that happens in the workplace. 17-year-old Emily Longley was found dead at this Bournemouth address in early May. Early this morning in New Zealand, her father, Mark Longley, received the news he'd been waiting for. Police phoned me this morning and they basically read out the police statement to me. I worked at a regional newspaper. The story of Emily's murder was all over the news. The statement explains that Emily Longley's ex-boyfriend, Elliot Turner, has been charged with her murder and with perverting the course of justice. It's been tough, but we're, we're pleased that the police have reached this stage in the investigation. Some of my own colleagues worked on stories about Emily. But while some people were fantastic, many would avoid me or avoid the conversation. Mark Longley first thought his daughter had died in her sleep. He hasn't decided if he will travel to the UK for the trial. We would just like some time 
and space to be able to grieve the loss of our beautiful daughter. We're just so awkward around death. We don't know what to do, what to say. We don't know what role we should play. There is no template, no duck and cover instructions. At a time when someone needs us the most, we often shy away. My mother's Māori and my father's Pākehā. Yeah, from um, the Bay of Plenty. Yeah, so we're Tūhoi, so um, from Ruatoki, um, and my marae down there is Otanuku. Tracy McIntosh is a sociologist and professor of Indigenous Studies and the co-head of Wailanga or Waipapa, the School of Māori Studies at the University of Auckland. From a very young age, I realised that death like life was different, that the way we responded to death on the Pākehā side of the family was very different to the way that we responded to death on the Māori side of the family. Mm. One of the elements of being human is that we have to be able to do this. Um, and we may do it in a, different, a range of different ways, but we have to engage with it. For 20 years, Tracy taught death and dying at the university. The classes were large. She lectured up to 300 people at once. And she'd asked the class at the beginning of the semester for a show of hands to see who had been to a funeral. Tracy says that around a third of her students would never have attended one. And she says that this lack of exposure to death can create a fear of it. So, you know, these would have been 19, 20-year-olds. To the most, they'd be older students in that class as well. And that, for me, was astonishing. I just didn't know how you'd gone through life without attending them. So those, young, those people that had never gone to a funeral... Um, if I did another test on them, probably, not in all cases, would have a higher fear of death than those that had been mm. to many. Tracy told me that the tangihanga remains one of the strongest elements of Māori culture. The tangihanga, the tangi is one of those incredible spaces that allows us to acknowledge and uphold our relationships. I guess that's the, the, the real thing around how tangi is so life-affirming. It constantly reinforces those relationships. It's a recognition that those relationships can exist beyond this life. Tangihanga, or tangi, is the Māori funeral rite and traditionally lasts three days. It isn't just a funeral and burial, but rather it includes the preparations, the mourning, the burial, and then the work there is to be done after the guests leave. The tangi strengthens relationships with the living and the dead. In Māori culture, the dead are very much a part of our lives. They are recognised, spoken about and spoken to. Every formal occasion, so every pōhiri that you go to, mm. every welcome, the dead, will, the dead are brought into that. They're brought into that uh, ritually, mm. uh, so that when we're called on, we call, we're calling on the living and the dead that during that, that being called on process, we will stop to remember those that are not, that are not passed. And then in terms of the whaikorero, when the speeches are being done, the dead will be constantly referred to. Tracy says that when death and grief are spoken about and people are exposed to them, it is easier for us to know our role, what part we play in supporting a person or family who are grieving. One of the sort of real human things is, is around how do you manage the fear of death? Mm. And... In Western culture, largely it's been seen as through a death-denying culture. We're exposed yeah. to so yeah. much death in our lives through media, through movies, through books, through television. You know, yeah. So even though we say that Western society is a death-denying culture, we're saturated with images of death. 
that's where the most where the least likely to actually experience mm. our ability to cope with it is really compromised. Whereas other societies, and I would say that Māori are one of these, is one of the things that we do have is that when someone dies, it's actually relatively easy in thinking about your relationship with that individual to know what role you will play. Whereas I think for many that actually amplifies the fear or uncertainty of death is that you actually don't know what to do. Mm. Now, what are you supposed to do? Who's going to take charge of this? I think within Māori culture then that through the process of colonisation, through the process of alienation and loss of land and of resources. That's why the tangihanga became so important. Mm. It became to be seen as the last bastion. They can't take away our death and our death customs. And that's why I think it's become so important in terms of reinforcing collective identity. Mm. It doesn't take away that particular grief. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that grieving isn't important, but it's an acknowledgement of the grieving process. That's such a human process. Mm. We expect to grieve. Tracy believes that Maori traditions around death are having an impact on Pākehā New Zealanders. I think that's what we've really seen in New Zealand is just how much the Maori kawa rituals and protocols have informed and influenced other non-Maori within New Zealand. So it's much, particularly with the death of the young that we're much more likely to see them being at home, whether they're Māori or non-Māori. And I certainly see that when my children have lost their friends. There's been a whole lot of those features that I didn't see when I grew up in Pākehā families, um, which are now much more common. And yeah, we, we're, we're, we're shaped and informed by each other's practices. Because it was a murder investigation, Emily's body was released four months after she died. We flew her from England to her mother Caroline's house in Auckland, where she stayed for three days so her friends could visit and spend some time. Caroline and I never discussed it, but we knew about this aspect of Maori culture, and it felt right for us. It gave us some time and space to say goodbye to Emily, and it gave her friends something tangible to grieve. I still think that the ability to recognise that what death really does is that it makes us recognise our collective humanity, mm. our responsibilities to each other. And I feel really blessed that I'm within a culture that, that does that, that openly recognises that I have a responsibility for another, that I can acknowledge. And in my quite imperfect ways, can look at ways that I might support you. I still think that is a part of, you know, Modi order of our flourishing as a people um, and as a nation, I think. The audio that you're about to hear is disturbing. In the days following Emily's death, Dorset police made a series of covert recordings in the family home of Elliot Turner and his parents, Lee and Anita. These tapes were instrumental in ensuring Turner's conviction. We're using these recordings with the permission of the Dorset Police. And I just let grabbed out and I fucking grabbed it as hard as I could and I won't fucking out. Grabbed it like that and crushed it. The truth will come out, Elliot. The truth will show with the jury. The what jury. truth? What truth? Fucked I said I was going to kill her. I sent text messages that I was going to kill her. Or into a club with a weapon. That is the truth. That's going to come out. Fuck me when I get a call. I'm going to be fucked. Turner and Emily had a short relationship in which she very quickly became controlling, then aggressive. 
had no conscience at that time. You never told me? I just, I just flipped. I went absolutely nuts. I've never in my whole life ever got to that point of just uncontrollability. Over just a few months, his behaviour became more and more violent. Emily broke up with him. And Turner told his friends that he was going to murder her. At his parents' house in Bournemouth on May the 7th, 2011, Elliot Turner stood behind my daughter, put his arm around her neck and choked the life out of her. She, that, that girl is, by me meeting that, that girl has ruined my life. Yeah, she has ruined my life. She did. She did ruin your life. The female voice you can hear in these recordings is Turner's mother, Anita. Well, honestly, Mum, you focused that phone call. I don't know, I just thought she wasn't, I thought she was just knackered. Hence, officer, I made a cup of tea. Mum, that's fine, it's, it's so believable. Focus the conversation because it looks fucking, you look so guilty, you look so guilty. Mum, please, from a policeman's point of view, it's so, so obvious. you got to think, 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 think. Brain, brain, brain. The second male voice is that of his father, Lee. Because we've perverted the course of justice. We've destroyed vital evidence in this case. You think we're right? Because it's burning me inside. Every second of my day, it's burning. It's burning me. It's eating me up. We've perverted the course of justice. That was a confession. He was bigger and stronger than her. And she didn't stand a chance. He said that if he couldn't have her, no one could. Emily would have died quickly. And knowing this is my only solace. It's rainy, Toto. What are we going to do here, Em? Eat pies. Oh no, I should say that because mum will probably watch it. You're going to get a pie. And some hot chips, aren't we, Dad, and an ice cream? No, not hot chips. Emily would have been 25 this year. On her birthday, the family got together and I cooked her favourite meal, a green chicken curry with my own hybrid recipe that she loved. After I had made the curry paste, she used to sniff the mixing bowl breathing in the chilli, garlic and coriander. It reminds me of her every time I make it. Emily just loved her food. So it's funny that my last meal with her was a greasy takeaway. Emily was en route back to Auckland and then the UK and we stopped off at the McDonald's in Pyroa. Of all the good food we enjoyed together, our last meal was a Big Mac and fries. I will never fully deal with my grief for Emily. And in a way, I don't want to. My grief is part of me now. It connects me to Emily. To let it go would feel like a betrayal. I don't think we ever get over this. No. And we don't need to do that either. This is grief therapist Lise Groot-Alberts. I always say whatever works. Don't let anybody tell you any textbooks about how you have to do this or that you have to get over it. That is what got me through when I started to realize that I don't need to get over anything. You get over the measles, yeah. but you don't get over a broken heart. 
I often think it is then uh, when something like that happens, do we turn our life into a prison of pain or can we turn it into a school? It's a bit like how do we turn shit into fertilizer? Today on 3 News at 12, Elliot Turner is found guilty of killing New Zealand teenager Emily Longley in a jealous rage. A year after Emily Longley was found dead, her mum and dad, Mark and Caroline, are finally able to grieve for her without wondering exactly how she died. Early this morning, an English jury found Elliot Turner guilty of murdering her. Despite denying the charges against him, Elliot Turner was found guilty of Emily's murder and sent to prison for 16 years. Prosecutors said Anita and Lee Turner took their son's jacket from the crime scene and destroyed a letter he wrote on the night of Longley's death. Lee Turner admitted ripping up the letter, but said neither he nor his wife ever read what was in it. His parents, Lee and Anita, were found guilty of perverting the course of justice and sentenced to 27 months. Sentence death by strangulation, death by suffocation, Manslaughter trial, how to, how to go off innocent. The judge said his arrogance was breathtaking, his lack of remorse chilling. And I also typed in fucking Google how to get away with serious crimes. Marked on the neck with a suicide note, life sentence, boom. Emily's parents had never met Turner, never even laid eyes on him until he stood in the dock in court. But they've heard their daughter's boyfriend described as evil, arrogant, spoiled, aggressive, manipulative and smarmy. What we heard over the past five weeks has shocked us and disgusted us. When a man so evil as Turner can treat a gentle, loving girl like Emily that way. During his trial, Turner showed no remorse for killing Emily. When asked by the prosecutor why he wasn't sad, he replied, well, it was a year ago. I'm no longer angry at Turner. I let the anger go. Otherwise, it would have destroyed me. Turner let his anger rage out of control, and it killed Emily. I am better than that. But there is one more thing I have to do to close Turner out of my life. I'm going to have to forgive him. Death, a podcast about love, grief and hope, was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio engineering by Asher Bastian. Graphics by James Brown and Vinay Ranchot. To learn more, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. <laughs>